Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Happy second Sunday of Easter to you all. Three times in John chapter 20, Jesus comes into the midst of his disciples and speaks peace. Verse 19, peace be unto you. Verse 21, peace be unto you. Verse 26, peace be unto you. Three times in the span of just eight verses. What's going on here? Is Jesus just being gregarious? Is he just saying he's excited to see them? You know, what's up, y'all? That's not what Jesus means by peace. And when we pass the peace, by the way, to one another, that's not just an antiquated, well, it's, it's not an antiquated, churchy way of saying hello. When Jesus speaks peace, it is in part a proclamation of the victory of the peace he won by his death and resurrection, and it's the impartation thereof. He's both announcing and giving peace. Peace which was won at Calvary. The end of verse 19 into verse 20. Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Jesus shows his battle scars, as it were. And he bears the marks of his victory, the peace which he has won, his marks of victory over sin, the devil, and death. Again, he announces and imparts peace. On account of our trespasses and sins, we were at enmity with God. We weren't at peace with God or within ourselves. But as Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus speaks peace, it's not the sort of peace that you might have on the Lido deck of a cruise ship, although that's nice too. It's the sort of peace that comes after a hard-fought battle. It's the peace of knowing that your sins are forgiven. It's the peace of being able to become what you were created to be. You're a creature made in God's image, made to be united with God, and this Union is made possible by the image, by the icon of the invisible God who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Who took on, who took up human nature and redeemed and healed it. It's the peace that we can have in our souls because Jesus is always 
with us. Lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. It's the peace that we can have because we no longer fear death. Jesus Christ has conquered death and we have the hope of the resurrection. Verse 21 and following, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Jesus breathes on them. Why? Why does he do this? As often is the case when we're reading the Gospel of John, the answer lies in asking the question, what does this have to do with Genesis? What does this have to do with new creation? Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. As God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, so does Christ breathe the Spirit into the apostles, making their souls alive in him. And also ordaining and equipping and transforming and empowering them to be the people that God has called them to be and to execute the office that he has called them to. It's the Spirit, brothers and sisters, who makes us alive. It's the Holy Spirit of God that applies the victory of Calvary to us. The Spirit whom we receive at baptism regenerates us. That is, it makes us alive. It gives us new life in Christ. It's new birth. The breath of God breathed on us makes us living souls. It it puts flesh on our bones Allah Ezekiel, and assures us of the hope of the resurrection. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The Spirit transforms. The Spirit empowers for mission. Just notice the contrast between the disciples in John 20, before Jesus, they encountered Jesus and he breathes on them the Spirit. The difference between They're scared. They're hiding out. They're fearing for their lives. The difference between that and what we see in Acts chapter 5. Where they're saying, you guys can't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And what do they say? With boldness. Knowing that their very lives are on the line. We must obey God rather than man. The Spirit transforms and empowers for mission. As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. So what he's doing is he's commissioning the apostles, and then he gives them the strength and power to carry out that mission by giving them the Holy Spirit. And this, again, is a work of new creation, new Genesis. This is the renewal 
of the Edenic commission which the Lord gave Adam and Eve. What did he tell them? He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue and steward it. To take the Garden of Eden, as it were, which was this place where heaven and earth overlapped, and to expand the borders of Eden out to the ends of the earth. It says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So in like man manner, Christ sends out the church, led by the apostles, to rule the earth. That is, to announce and implement the reign of King Jesus. To expand the borders of the new Eden, the new creation, to forgive and retain sins. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. I've... Uh, Developed a sympathy for Thomas. He's often called Doubting Thomas. And that's not necessarily fair. Uh, we don't call Peter denying Peter. Uh, we don't call James and John uh, the narcissistic sons of thunder because they wanted the best seats in the house next to Jesus. We don't define them by their failures. Uh, and I, I've told you all this before. That the church fathers and the Eastern Orthodox Church to this day are much more focused on the transformation of Thomas rather than his doubt. Father John Bear, who is an Orthodox priest and scholar, he writes this on Thomas's doubt. His doubt and his inquiry is not out to disprove, but to confirm. There is indeed a world of difference between a doubt that is seeking confirmation and a doubt that is basically skeptical. As the fathers and medieval theologians put it, faith seeks understanding. So Thomas, of course, wants to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. And it is for our benefit and the sovereignty of God it is for our benefit that Thomas was absent when Jesus first presented himself to the disciples. Because out of the touching and belief of Thomas comes one of the most definitive professions of faith in all of Holy Scripture. My Lord and my God. Jesus of Nazareth is shown and proclaimed to be very God and very man, that is truly man, that the one whom they encountered was the one who was born, the one who died, and the one who was raised up. And these events and this proclamation, they were recorded in Holy Scripture as a witness to all of us. That's what John says, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. 
We are the blessed ones of whom Jesus speaks. The ones who have not seen, but believe. And may we be those of whom Peter speaks in his first epistle. He writes this, Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So we have not seen the Lord yet in the same way that the disciples and Thomas a week later with the disciples have have seen and touched the Lord. We may have our our own doubts. And our own doubts can can be different sorts of doubts. Maybe, um, Maybe there are people who they struggle with the historicity of the resurrection, and there's certainly a plethora of evidence for that. But I think oftentimes the doubts that Christians struggle with are more along the lines of uh, not so much did this happen, but does this Jesus, whom we read about, who we encounter in the life of the church, Does he love me? We doubt the love of God and his activity in our lives. But we have not yet held his nail-scarred hands, but they do bear witness to us of the incredible Love of God. Think about that. This theological stuff, which I like to talk about, I don't talk about it just because it's interesting to me. It matters. The Word became flesh. Jesus took up complete and universal human nature. And that's a forever and eternal reality. Jesus, at his resurrection, didn't cease to be human. He didn't fly up to heaven as some sort of ghost or apparition. He's glorified in the same, that, same way that will be glorified at the last day. But in his glorified body, for all of eternity, he will bear the marks of his love for you on his body, an eternal witness to the love of God for you. We have not yet held his nail-scarred hands, nor have we thrust our hands into his side. We have not seen the Lord face-to-face dwelling in unapproachable and uncreated light. However, In another sense, we even now do hear him and see him and touch him. As his sheep, we hear his voice and know it, for we meet him in holy scripture.
we glimpse him with the eyes of our hearts in prayer. We see him in the lives of our fellow members of the church, the mystical body of Jesus Christ. And we handle, we eat, we drink his very body and blood, which was given us, given for us on the cross and raised up on that first Easter Sunday. John writes in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. And because of this witness of the apostles and because of the spirit-filled life of the church, we can say with John that we have heard, that we have seen, that we have touched the word of life. And we can fall on our knees before the crucified and risen Jesus, crying out in faith, hope, and love, my Lord and my God.